podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Wharton Sports Business Show podcast. A recap of the best moments from this week's show on SiriusXM, which you can hear live on Tuesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern. This is Michelle Young. This is George Perry. Here are the highlights. Hello and welcome to the Wharton Sports Business Show here on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. I'm your host, Michelle Young, with the Wharton Sports Business Initiative. As usual, we have a great lineup in store for you today. Just a moment, we'll be joined on the phone by USA Today NFL columnist Lindsey Jones to talk more about the NFL anthem issue and the new safety rules being implemented this year. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Now that the preseason has started in the NFL, can you talk about what the league had initially rolled out as their national anthem policy for the 2018 season? So if we go back to the end of last season, um, there were only a handful of guys who were still doing some sort of demonstration, whether that was um, sitting during the national anthem, kneeling, raising a fist. Um, but the, the league owners decided that they wanted to put some sort of policy in place this offseason that so that this year there would be kind of a unified policy around the league. So back in May, the owners um, voted. It was may or not have been an official vote, um, but voted on a new policy that would require players to stand um, if they are on the sidelines for the during the national anthem. Um, the other caveat is that is that if a player did not want to stand, he was able to stay in the locker room or inside the tunnel and rejoin his teammates once the anthem was over. Um, the big problem with that policy was that um, they did not consult the NFL Players Association or any players when they instituted that policy back in May. And so there was a lot of backlash immediately from players um, because the owners kind of tried to push this as it was a compromise. And it was a compromise between kind of factions of owners. There were some on, you know, all the way on one side, like Jerry Jones of the Cowboys, Bob McNair of the Houston Texans, who really wanted all of their players standing, you know, hands over heart um, during the anthem. And then there were other owners, whether that be um, for, with the New York Giants, um, San Francisco 49ers, Jed York, that wanted players to be able to kind of have the freedom to decide what they wanted to do. Um, and so this was kind of in, became a compromise amongst the owners, but it was certainly not a compromise with the players. What we've seen now is that there's everything is on hold and they're going now back and negotiating with the players union to try to come up with some sort of policy that maybe will appease everyone. I just think that's something that's going to be very hard to actually accomplish. And we also saw a couple players take to social media to you know, further explain what their protests were about. And Malcolm Jenkins was one of those. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yes. I mean, the, the messaging has been very important for the players because I think what we're now seeing uh, is some pushback from the president and others saying, well, nobody even knows why they're protesting. And the players, I mean, dating back to Colin Kaepernick in 2016 when this began, have been very vocal about the issues that they care about. It's, you know, it's police brutality, it's um, systemic racial inequality, it's um, a lot of other forms of systemic racial inequality and social injustice that they've been protesting. And um, Jenkins and the Players Coalition and Kenny Stills, who is not part of the Players Coalition, but is, um, has been very, very tied to Colin Kaepernick, they have been very vocal about the things that they care about. Um, whether it is um, youth incarceration rates. What we saw from the Players Coalition a couple weeks ago was that during training camp, they were wearing T-shirts that said hashtag schools, not prisons, and had statistics about the number of um, children, you know, youth that are incarcerated in this country, specifically highlighting the number of 
youth of color, you know, African-American children who have been in jail. So, you know, they have been very, uh, very active in talking about what their issues are because they believe that their message um, has really been tied up too much with the national anthem and not so much what they're actually wanting to change. And taking it back to the owners, because as you said in the beginning, you know, there are varying viewpoints on this and tying that into Kenny Stills with the Dolphins. Can you talk about the Dolphins ownership and what they had initially said about the protest rule and where they are on that now? Yeah. So why the the league and the NFLPA really decided to kind of put uh, this policy on hold was after right before training camp. And it was it was reported by the Associated Press that the Dolphins had a line in their player handbook this year that players could be potentially fined or suspended for violating the national anthem rule. That was something in, in addition to what the league, the league policy had said. Um, the league was going said that teams could be punished if players um, did not uh, abide by the new rule. And they, but they also gave the teams the ability to punish players individually on top of that. And Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, came right out, you know, or a day later, about 24 hours later, and said that was merely a placeholder, and they were still trying to figure out exactly what their policy would be. But there was significant backlash after that. And, you know, I think the Dolphins, it was an interesting situation because um, Stephen Ross has been one of the more progressive owners. He's put a lot of money um, and time into social justice causes. They registered all their players to vote a couple years ago. I mean, that was a pretty unique situation in pro sports. Um, and he he founded Rise, which is a... Um, social justice initiative for um, athletes, not just in the NFL, but across, you know, college and professional sports. So, you know, it was kind of an interesting, interesting situation to see that the Dolphins had done that. I don't think that they were alone in doing that. They were just the first who had this policy um, that was reported publicly. So there was a lot of backlash from that. But so far, we have not seen, um, you know, any repercussions for what Kenny Stills and Albert Wilson did last week. You know, he says that he has the support of his coaches. Um, but the the bottom line is that this this is far from over, and I just I don't think no matter that they are negotiating right now the league and the players, and they're trying to get a lot more player input and trying to come up with a policy. But I don't think that there's going to be any one thing that is going to you know have one side win this or have this be over because the players still very, a lot of these players still very passionately care about these issues and want to keep highlighting them. Um, and the president com- continues to use this as an issue to um, that will appeal to his base. Sure. I just I don't think that no matter what policy they come up with, I have a hard time seeing everybody come to agreement and that it just go away quietly. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the NFL's new safety rules and what those are. Yeah. So the biggest change this year is that they've made a rule that is prohibiting players from using their helmet to initiate contact. And they've been trying over the course of, I mean, shoot, at least the last 10 years to really take the head out of the game. And there have been targeting rules where, you know, you couldn't use the crown of your helmet to lower your helmet to make contact. They've done put in a lot of protections on defenseless players, especially defenseless receivers. Um, but this was a significant, significant change this year because it was basically outlawing any use of the helmet for initiating contact. And that includes for offensive players, for like a running back who would, you know, potentially lower his head to fight for extra yardage against a linebacker for offensive linemen who might be, you know, pulling ahead of a play. So there've been a lot of questions about how this rule is going to be applied. And what we've seen over the first week of games really is that um, we've seen a couple textbook cases. You know, there was a player who was ejected from that by the end of an Indianapolis Colts player who was ejected where it was a very classic, 
he lowered his helmet. He do- he dove at a receiver, um, helmet to helmet. He was ejected. That was the first player who's been ejected because of this rule, which is also the a- another new thing this year is that players can be ejected because of this. Um, but then we've seen a lot of others that are very questionable that you wonder how are they going to play the game and how is this going to be officiated if these are if these type of tackles are being called. Um, so I think the thing that we're seeing is that they're going to maybe over call it in the preseason. Um, the, the officials and the referees are going to err on the side of let's throw the flag. And then at the end of August, we'll have, you know, a couple hundred potential of these penalties that we can look through and decide, OK, this actually is a penalty and this isn't. Um, but this is a storyline that is going to be ongoing this year as um, coaches are trying to figure out how to coach it. Players are going to have to learn what is and what isn't a foul. And the, the officials especially are going to have to learn exactly how they're going to call it in real time. Concussions have been in the news with the NFL. So can you just talk a little bit further about why the NFL feels they need to do this? They've been under a lot of fire because of the way that they've handled um, head injuries and concussions, um, not just recently, but for many years. I mean, there was obviously major lawsuits that they they lost um, several years ago. But, you know, they're having to make significant changes um, for the safety of the game as a way to make the game survive and keep um, the next generation of players coming into the league because there's so much more awareness about head injuries and the long-term damage that can come from, from football and other, in, and other sports that um, have head contact, um, whether that's you know soccer or lacrosse or boxing or any of these things. But, um, yeah, the NFL is putting in a lot of rules about that are changing the way that the game is played. And, it's really hard to argue with any of those. I mean, I think there's some very old school football people say, oh, you're making it too soft. And, you know, the, this isn't the, the game that I grew up watching or playing. But I think everybody has to acknowledge that the game has to be safer, um, both for the current players and for the generations to come. I would now like to welcome Adam Stern of the Sports Business Journal. Thanks so much for having me on. Can you talk a little bit about where NASCAR was 10 to 15 years ago compared to where it is today? Yeah, I think uh, 10, 15 years ago was probably when the sport was peaking from an attendance and ratings perspective. Um, you know, you never say never, right? So, I mean, the sport can can maybe somehow get back to those heights uh, depending on how the future shakes out. But, yeah, I mean, certainly – in the early 2000s was when the sport was uh, seeing kind of its its biggest growth. Uh, it was really kind of transitioning from a sport that had mostly a Southern-based uh, uh, fan base to, to one that had increasingly a national fan base. Uh, obviously had a, you know, at that, in those days, it was kind of, uh, you know, right around the time when Dale Earnhardt Jr. was becoming a star. His father passed away in 2001. He was obviously kind of NASCAR's most popular driver until he passed away, and then he passed that mantle on to his son. Uh, there were several other stars who kind of caught the nation's attention around those times. So there was just a, a confluence of factors that the economy had not crashed. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the kind of, uh, you know, ep- epics of, of NASCAR and the, and the different, you know, eras, uh, the when the economy crashed around 2008 was kind of a, a big uh, kind of segmentation. Um, the sport's kind of been trying to recover ever since. And, and so, yeah, again, you look back to, to those days and, and it was certainly the kind of the headier days of NASCAR. Let's talk a little bit about the current business and leadership structure of NASCAR. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they got, uh, you know, they, they, it's a it's a privately owned business. Uh, it's been owned by the France family since I think it was founded in 1948. So obviously it's a little bit different than a, a lot of other stick and ball leagues. Uh, you know, obviously, like, for example, the NFL or NBA is owned by all the owners. They, they all own a collective, you know, slice of the pie, and they literally own the league, whereas in NASCAR, 
you know, the, the sanctioning body is owned by a family and one family only. Um, and then it's also a little bit different in the sense that, you know, in the NFL or NBA, et cetera, the, the league kind of to an extent owns the teams um, and, and they're all kind of one. And, and then the teams own the venues in NASCAR. It's a lot different. Um, you know, the France family, which owns NASCAR, they, they own the sanctioning body, which is kind of the governing body, but they don't necessarily own it. They definitely don't own any of the teams. They do own some of the tracks, but it's somewhat of a, a separate company. It's a publicly traded company that is under International Speedway Corp. is the name. So it's definitely a unique structure in NASCAR that that is a good bit different than what you see in stick and ball leagues. And that's what's also somewhat led to some of the issues over the years. It's very complicated to try and uh, navigate the space for for people like sponsors, even media partners at times, things like that. So it, it's uh, you know it's a somewhat Darwinism. It's just the way motorsports has always been. It's not set up exactly like football, basketball, hockey, baseball, but. Uh, it's definitely a bit of a unique structure, and, and it's something that has led to some of the challenges uh, over the years. The deal with Fox, and we've been talking a lot on this show, and we've seen in the news a lot about ratings, um, especially for the NFL. So how are ratings for NASCAR right now? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you, know, you can get kind of two different answers on this. If you look at how NASCAR is doing versus itself, uh, you know, from its peak, it's down significantly. Uh, you know, we, we started off talking about kind of that 2005 to 2007 time before things kind of started to turn down a little bit in 2008, 2009. You know, from those days, they're down maybe 40, 50 percent peak ratings. However, in those days, their ratings were so high that they were com- that they were pretty much only coming after the NFL and college football in terms of ratings. So while they've seen, you know, some, some pretty substantial declines, their ratings from their peak were so high that they're still getting some pretty good numbers. Um, you know, they still average several million people watching their main race a, race a week. I think that over the first half of the season, the, the average was around 3.6 million people for, for their top series races. So that still compares pretty favorably to all of sports and entertainment. It certainly is starting to lag further and further behind, you know, the number one, which is, is still the NFL. But, um, you know, if you, if you compare it to all in sports and entertainment, they're still doing okay. Uh, if you compare it versus themselves, obviously they're nowhere where they want to be because they're, you know, about 40 to 50% off their peak. We're going to shift gears here as we are happy to have Jack Gretzinger, CEO and co-founder of SeatGeek, on the line. Hey, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what SeatGeek is? Ultimately, it's um, the ultimate ticket app in your pocket that's going to... A, help you discover, you know, it's going to learn about what you like to do. It's going to help you discover stuff around you that you didn't know about. And then once you've decided that you want to go buy something, um, we're going to deliver to you the most inventory on the Internet, all in one place, for the best prices, help you easily find the best deals. Um, once you've bought a ticket, you know, in a few taps, we'll zap that ticket to your phone. You can share it with friends. You can get into the event just using the app. So it's sort of this ecosystem all centered around making it just incredibly dead simple to, to go to a show or go to a game or go to a concert. What is the advantage for someone that might be a little bit, say, more familiar with a competing ticket uh, company to using SeatGeek? Yeah, so um, I guess you're speaking about on the uh, SeatGeek Open Enterprise side of things? Yes. Yeah, so we have kind of a fundamentally different model, um, and it's one totally focused around openness. Um, the kind of legacy model in our industry has been uh, one of close exclusivity, where you know, a venue would kind of contract with a legacy ticketing company and then only sell tickets on that that company's site. 
which is pretty strange when you think about the, the broader context of e-commerce and how people usually sell things online. Um, you know, that would be like if Hilton decided that they were going to allow only Expedia to sell all of their inventory and not use any other travel site, which of course is sort of silly, right? It would mean that, um, you know, Hilton would get less distribution and, and sell fewer rooms. It would also mean that, that the user experience was probably worse because in my example, you know, Expedia wouldn't have any incentive to really create a better user experience. They would have a monopoly on that distribution point. And that's what's existed historically. We enable uh, our clients, um, like the Cowboys and the New Orleans Saints, New Orleans Pelicans, um, to sell not only on SeatGeek, but to sell across the whole internet, you know, on their terms at the sites they want to, and ultimately to reach more fans and deliver better experiences, experiences to fans. And, and I know you do a lot of work with the MLS. So what have you been doing with the various teams um, in Major League Soccer? Yeah, we're thrilled to have MLS's partners. Um, they're an incredibly innovative league. Um, we're um, their league-wide ticketing partner, and then we also work with uh, many of the specific um, MLS teams, including um, you know, Sporting Kansas City and Seattle Sounders and Los Angeles FC and, and many others. Um, and, and, you know, along with uh, working closely with the MLS, we sort of um, – conceived of the value of open ticketing and worked with them to create the first template for it when we launched with Sporting Kansas City uh, two years ago. Um, so they've really, you know, credit to them for being on the bleeding edge of this and, and doing it for all the right reasons. I mean, it's ultimately just to deliver um, better experiences, a better time to MLS fans so they, get, they come back, you know, again and again. Talk us through the process. You know, what happens before the season when they're about to start ticketing up to when the fan has a ticket, you know, on their mobile device getting into the door. Is their data captured? Um, just everything that goes into that. Yeah, that's a great question. It depends a bit on the specific situation. So every pro sports team uh, sells a good fraction of their tickets via season tickets. So at the beginning of the season, we're working on getting season tickets to every season ticket holder. Um, those season ticket holders could can then, um, you know, often transfer tickets to friends. So perhaps, you know, you have uh, 41 tickets for the Pelicans, and you're going to go to 30, but then you're going to send five to one friend and six to another. Um, you might decide to resell some of those if there's some games you can't make. And then we'll also, of course, work uh, with the team to power the, the single game sales, so allowing them to set prices across all of the games that are scheduled. Um, and to your point, understand from a data perspective who they're selling to. Um, current uh, teams in, in the legacy, legacy paradigm know the identity of a surprisingly small number of people who are attending their events, usually less than half, which is a real problem, you know, on multiple dimensions. It's a problem from a security standpoint. It's a problem from a customer relationship standpoint. So by, by opening things up and allowing all information to sort of flow through this open system, we can pass that back to the team so they actually know who is in their venue and can use that intelligently. Can you talk about what you're excited about moving forward with SeatGeek? Yeah, you know, um, ultimately, we feel like so much time kind of building um, the infrastructure of what is now becoming a pretty big groundswell change in the wider entertainment industry, where as things have, you know, moved fully mobile and are being distributed openly, we're able to, to do things that previously um, were not possible and get millions and millions and millions of incremental folks into venues. There's a huge problem still in pro sports. Uh, where, you know, up to, depending on how you ask, half of inventory out there ultimately goes unsold, goes unused. Um, and it's mostly just an access and awareness problem. If you can get the right inventory in front of the right folks 
um, and can deliver to them seamlessly, then that number goes down to something much, much less. So it's fun for me is after you know many years of kind of working on the constituent parts of solving that problem, we're finally beginning to really see meaningful results. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Sports Business Show podcast. And don't forget to check out the full show on Business Radio Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern. This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.